Morning. Before we get in the word, we're going to have uh, someone share. I, I, I know Justice knew this person was going to share, but I'm not sure if Mike did. But uh, both their exhortations as we began worship this morning go very well uh, with what this person is going to share regarding God's sovereignty, his providence, um, how he always works things for the good of those who love him. So Margaret Porch is going to come up and share. Give it up for Margaret. This has to do with what happened to us last weekend. And um, it was a devotional that I wrote to the Heartstrong Moms on Wednesday. And Michael asked me to um, do it. So here it go. Last week, Mike preached on 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. And it was a great sermon. What I want to share with you is what he shared regarding the words taught by God in verse 12. He said that in the Greek, that the phrase is just one Greek word a word coined by Paul and used for the first time here and is translated more accurately as God taught. So Mike said that as Christians, we have already been taught by God himself, the best teacher to have. God wants to instill truth in us, and we need to let the Lord truly be our teacher. So we need to ask ourselves, as we hear and read the word of the Lord, what is the Lord teaching me? He went on to say that as Christians, each one of us, is a mouthpiece of God, and God wants us to speak biblical truth into other people's lives. As God teaches us, we are to be teachers of others. He then gave an example of how a coach he was interviewing talked about how God was gracious to him, how, what God was doing in his life, and so on. Basically, he spent the whole interview sharing the gracious and good things God was doing in his life. Mike then encouraged us that we need to be like that, We need to, naturally in conversation, see how we can work our conversations in a way that can glorify the Lord. Bring up Jesus in conversation to talk about what Jesus is doing in our lives. Wow, that struck me a lot, especially since we were sitting at home instead of at church, watching the service in the early afternoon before we took our dog to the emergency clinic. He had died that morning. Then, so the rest of this devotional, the rest of this story, is the story of that weekend and how the Lord's hand was over it all, allowing us to walk through a difficult circumstance, seeing his hand over it all, and remembering to wrap Jesus in the story because he was there, orchestrating so much and caring for so many. So the story. Michael and I went to a funeral that weekend, five hours away. We got away later than planned on Friday, but knew we had till 10 a.m. Saturday when the visitation began before the funeral started. So a three-hour drive to Terre Haute on Friday and a two-hour drive the next morning got us there at 10.01. <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> we dropped Einstein, that's our dog, off at my daughter's house in Warrington at about 3.30 p.m. on Friday. He seemed perfectly fr- fine. He had thrown up that morning. Uh, kind of a weird throw up, but dogs throw up and he was fine afterward and was perfectly happy to arrive at Sarah's home and play with her dog. Saturday morning, on our way to the funeral, Sarah called and said Einstein's gums were bleeding when he was chewing on a rawhide bone. We told her not to worry. He hadn't been doing a lot of bone chewing, so he probably had gum issues that we would deal with later. Little did we know. The funeral we were going to was for the wife of my husband's first cousin once removed. We knew them from family reunions and felt a bit of a bond with them because they homeschooled, and his name was also Mike Porch. Oh, my, two of them. (laughs) When we walked 
into the church in Indiana, Cousin Mike was hanging up his coat, getting ready for a day that included his wife's funeral. He heard my husband's voice, and his face lit up, and he, and he said, Is that Mike Porch I hear? He was delighted to see us, especially since not many could come from out of town, COVID and all that. It was obvious to me right then that we were supposed to be there, that God wanted us there. The funeral was wonderful. It was uplifting. It was inspiring. Probably one of the best funerals I've ever been to. It was honoring a woman whose life was focused on serving and glorifying the Lord and loving her family. And it ended with the pastor saying that they were, that they were going to play a song honoring her graduation from her earthly life to heaven. And they played the Hallelujah Chorus. Wow, everyone stood, of course. Um, what a service. Um, we were blessed. Um, Cousin Mike sat with us at the lunch following the funeral, and we shared for more than an hour. He then wanted us to come with his family gathering afterward, and so we didn't leave till after 6 p.m., getting home after 11 p.m. It was a real blessing getting reacquainted with and ministering to his family. On the way home, Sarah called again. She, was, she may have even called a couple of times. Einstein wasn't feeling very good. Kept trying to throw up without success. She wondered if she should take him to the animal ER. We figured he was trying to get the rawhide out. Rawhide doesn't sit well with him. We told her not to worry. We'd take him to the vet on Sunday if he's not better. Sunday morning, Sarah called and said he was bringing him, she was bringing him home before church started. He still wasn't doing well. I got a call in Sunday school. Fortunately, I forgot to turn off my phone. Sarah was frantic. Einstein had gotten into the car without a problem. Sometime in the 40-minute drive to my house, he died. Just laid down his head and died. She opened her car to find him not breathing. We rushed home, more concerned about Sarah than Einstein. By then, I had figured out his stomach had flipped, a condition that was already past being helped by the time he got sick Saturday night. Einstein wasn't going to do me any good. We calmed Sarah, and once she figured out it wasn't her fault, she settled. Michael and I loaded Einstein's body in a wagon. He weighs 74 pounds, by the way. Uh, left him on the back porch and spent some time with Sarah, talking and watching her church service with her. Fortunately, she had a lunch invitation with close friends who were there for her for the rest of the day. As I reflected on what had just happened and on the events of the whole weekend, I stood in awe of a God who was there all the time, with his hand over all of us throughout the weekend, taking care of us, both those in Indiana and us here, in the midst of difficulties. Here's what I mean. He made sure Einstein didn't get sick, or we weren't aware of it, any earlier so we could be with the other Mike Porch, minister to him and his family, and be fully blessed by his wife's funeral. He made sure that Sarah was able to take care of Einstein and not take him to the animal ER, where she would have been told that he needs to be put down or have an expensive surgery that might work and that we didn't have to make that decision and then have to be the one who sits with him when they put him down. He made sure that Einstein didn't die while we were on the road, leaving Sarah with handling all that goes along with that. He made sure that Sarah had friends that would minister to her for the rest of the day after leaving her house. He allowed us time to grieve and made sure that we were ministered to, having just been to an inspiring and uplifting funeral and being able to listen to our church service before taking Einstein's body to the animal hospital to be cremated. He made sure that we were fed and encouraged. Joshua brought over a nice meal for us. 
that Beth and the kids made and the grandkids made cards for us. He opened up the opportunity for another dog almost two months earlier, one that looks a lot like Einstein, and that dog was already scheduled to come to our house this past Friday. And Max entered our lives on Friday. And seeing him curled up on the floor causes me to smile and reflect on God's love and care for his children. He reminded me of the importance of human relationships. We may have had another couple of years with Einstein, maybe not. One of the things the other Mike Porch said is that he had a wonderful relationship with Leanne, his wife, but he thought he'd have 10 or 15 more years with her. That contrast reminded me of just how important it is to nourish our relationships. So I would like to pass along to all of you what God taught me this past weekend, or probably retaught me, as he's probably done that many times before. He showed me he is there, sovereignly orchestrating the events of our lives for his glory. And gee, he even reaches across state lines. He showed me that I need to, that we all need to look for him and how he works in our lives and give him glory. And that we need to share what we have learned with others as he teaches us. So we need to teach others. So now, when I reflect on an inspiring weekend funeral of one of God's saints, as well as on the loss of a pet, a dog that we have enjoyed for the past seven or eight years, I rejoice and marvel in the God I serve and how he took care of so many of us this past weekend. May you do the same as you walk through each day, looking for how God is sovereignly orchestrating events in your life, caring for your family, you and your family in the good times and even in the darkest of times. Share those moments with your children and grandchildren. Help them see the God of the universe and his love for his saints. Thank you, Margaret. That was good. Is that encouraging? Don't worry, I'm not going to let Margaret Sharon cut short my sermon by any length, all right? In fact, uh, The Pew Research, which does different surveys, they actually surveyed 50,000 different sermons across America uh, recently, and they were looking for different things, um, but one of the things they looked at was the uh, sermon length. And so they broke it down into uh, four categories when they were given like the averages for sermon lengths. One was Roman Catholics, one was mainline Protestants, one was evangelicals, and one was uh, historically black Protestants. And just a quick question, did we release the kids? Okay, go ahead and be released. So, um, which one do you guys think was the shortest? Catholics. Which one do you think was the longest? Okay. (laughs) So the Roman Catholics, out of these 50,000 sermons, the ones that were Roman Catholic, average sermon length was 14 minutes. Mainline Protestants um, were 25 minutes. Evangelicals were 39 minutes. And then historically black Protestants uh, were 54 minutes. So not to be outdone by my black brothers in the pulpit, (laughs) I'm going to go at least that long today. All right, we're going to keep looking at uh, 1 Thessalonians, if you want to turn there, chapter 4. We've been talking about a few verses on the topic of love. 
And we'll read those again and then we'll get into it. Now, this subject of love, it comes up so frequently in the scriptures. You should never be surprised when a, a pastor preaches on love. It can be a little challenging, um, I think, for people hearing the word when the subject is love because you've probably heard it so often that you can grow accustomed to it and you can, um, if you're not careful, you can kind of tune out. Because you're like, oh, another sermon that touches on love. Um, or only partially listen. So I want to encourage us as we're looking at the Word today, let's make sure, not just today, but all the time, that we are active listeners. We want to be active listeners because um, when God is speaking through a pastor, you know, up on stage from the pulpit, uh, that, it's not like a lecture that you go to. So if you went to college, you know, I don't know, I, I went to a pretty big college, the University of Missouri-Columbia, at the time, I think it had like fifteen or 20,000 people. And especially some of my freshman classes could have two, 300 people in it. And, um, and so I was more than fine with, you know, sitting in, in the 47th row, you know, in the far back right, and, and just observing and listening and taking notes. I, I didn't really care to participate. Some people did. But that's not, we don't want to be like that. We want to engage because even though information and hopefully truth at times in, in those classes I was in was, was being um, given out and dispelled, that, that's a lot different than the truth when it comes from the Word of God, right? Yeah. So we want to make sure we engage with the sermon. Uh, and, and to be honest, that, that includes like body language, even posture. That includes uh, like our verbal language, which Tammy is awesome at, right? <clears throat> we also have to be careful with uh, distractions, Okay, we all probably have one of these either in our pocket or sitting on the seat next to us. It can distract us greatly. So I encourage you to uh, put it in a place, uh, you know, for, from the time that the service starts to it ends, that's an hour and a half, okay? And, and to think even um, most of us can think back to a time where we didn't have cell phones and we weren't just, you know, a finger's reach away from most of the world. So we, we want to be careful that distractions don't, and you know, right when, you know, the, the, the point's going to be driven home and you're being distracted by uh, a text from your friend who wants to know what you're doing later today. That can wait. So God has chosen to use his word through his spirit to speak to us. And I want to encourage us to make sure that we're listening and that we are actively listening. So let's be active listeners. Here's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to pick it up in verse 9. He says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are a sovereign God, that you're working uh, in, in the affairs of men providentially, that we can trust the good hand that comes from you, Lord, your good hand that leads and guides the affairs of men. We thank you for uh, Margaret's testimony of you being gracious to her and to Michael and to taking them through that weekend and being there every single step of the way. 
We thank you for the ministry that they had uh, to their cousin. And uh, may he be ministered to, Lord, as he misses his wife and, and grieves for that lost God. May your spirit be quick unto him, unto his grieving heart, God. And Lord, may we now be attentive to your word. We want to be uh, students. We want to sit at, at your feet, just like the disciples. We want to sit at your feet. We want to learn from you. So open up our hearts now. Spirit, um, take my words and, and, and let them be received in the way that you intend them to be and do your work. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start in verse 10. At the very end, uh, Paul says in, the, in verse 10, we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Well, what does he want them to do more and more? Well, we find that Bert, the answer in verse 9 when he says, after they have been taught by God, he says, to love one another, right? So last week we looked at how they loved one another. They'd already been doing that, verse 10. That indeed is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But then he goes on, we urge you, brothers, to do this. What's the this? The loving. To love more and more. Now here's the thing. Uh, one of the challenges sometimes um, when, when you're having your quiet time, if you just end up reading small chunks, um, is you can sometimes miss the larger context, right? So, and that's even, uh, can be even more challenging with really large books because it might take you um, a couple days or even maybe a couple weeks, depending on the length of the book, uh, to get through that. Uh, all these letters and even the Gospels were actually meant to be heard or read in one sitting. So I encourage you at various points in your quiet times and in your walk. I know sometimes... It, you can have like the most amazing quiet time and you've just read like three verses. You know, and God just like, out of those three verses, I mean, he speaks to you powerfully. And that's amazing and that's beautiful. But sometimes in your quiet times, I do encourage you to go for um, length rather than brevity so that you can kind of get that bigger picture. So, uh, especially as we're going through First Thessalonians, ah, it's kind of tricky to say that, okay? <laughs> and and I, I make it about every three or four hundred times saying that and I get tripped up, all right? <clears throat> so that book that we're going through, <laughs> um, I encourage you to read it in one sitting. At some point in the next few weeks, in one of your quiet times, it's actually not that many verses when you add them all together, uh, but make it through all five chapters so that you, you get that bigger picture. All right? Um, so what we're going to do, I, wanna, I want you to see this because there's actually a theme of love that is kind of woven throughout 1 Thessalonians. We're just going to touch on it real b- briefly. So look back in chapter 1. Now in verse 2 he says, we give thanks to God always for you. So when Paul's praying, he's thanking God for the Thessalonians. He says, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love. So one of the things he thanks God for is their, their, their love. They have a love for, for one another and for God, and he thanks them for it. Then go to chapter 3, and notice what he says in verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. So what does Timothy do? He brings us the good news of their faith and what? Of their love. So he's our, so Paul's thanked God for their love. That's what he experienced when he was there among them. And then Timothy brings back a report and says, hey man, they're, they're doing great with faith and love. So he mentions it there. Then a few verses later in 12, 
And as you remember, verses 11 and 12 and 13 are actually prayers. So he says in verse 12, Now may the Lord make you increase and abound in love. So first he thanks them, chapter 1. Then he commends them. Verse 6, he's commending them from their love. Hey, Timothy came back and he's like, man, you guys are, you guys are rocking it with faith and love. Like, keep up the good work. Then in verse 12, he's actually praying what? That, that that love that they have would continue to increase and abound. And then notice what he now does in chapter 4. He actually exhorts them and commands them to continue to do so. He says, uh, you have been taught by God to love one another. Verse 10, we urge you, you, we urge you, we urge you brothers to do this more and more. When it comes to love, you can never love enough. Okay, we will always be practicing love. We will never be a master of it. We will continually try to improve, to grow, to increase in love. So this exhortation, do this more and more, is also for us as well. This is why when it comes to the subject of love and it comes to a sermon, we, can, we, we need to hear it, we need to receive it, and we need to act on it. That's what Paul's doing here. Now I want you to notice something. Where is this love directed It's directed to other believers. That's what he's specifically talking about because he talks about this is what you are doing to who? Verse 10, all the brothers. But it's not just all the brothers in Thessalonians. It's all the brothers in Macedonia. Now, if you don't know your geography, that's okay. Because I'm about to tell you and help you out a little bit. Um, Macedonia was, was like a land region. So it's a pretty big chunk of land in the uh, ancient uh, Near East. It would have included uh, the Philippian church, um, the church that the Bereans had. It would have included the Thessalonian church. But it, it was a large, and, and many other cities and towns. But it was a very large geographic area. So when he says in verse 10, um, this is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. He's not just being like, oh, you know, uh, in your little tiny village or your little tiny town or just in Thessalonica. No, I mean, he's saying like through this entire region. Like maybe think for us like the Midwest, the entire Midwest, okay, to give you that picture. So not just even like St. Charles County, not just like Missouri, a pretty big area throughout the entire Midwest, throughout all of Macedonia, you are showing love. That's who they're displaying it to. But, but how are they displaying it? How, I mean, had they even met most of the believers in Macedonia? Because that included different churches. We know for sure, at least the Berean church, okay, which there's no letter, at least, that we have written to them, and then the Philippian church, which we do have. But at least those two um, churches... Well, how did they express it? Because here's the thing. Um, words, when we talk about love, words aren't enough. Words aren't enough. We, you know, if the Thessalonians were like, oh, we, we, you know, we love those Philippian believers over there, and, and they're so awesome, and, and they're just great. I mean, well, that's nice to say those things. But love is seen in actions. Love is seen in actions. I want you to look back at chapter 1 because Paul says a similar thing about them. He says in verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. 
Now this time it goes even bigger because Achaia was another large region which included uh, the church at Corinth, um, but it was, it was about as big as uh, Macedonia. So it's another large land region. And he's saying, man, uh, your example, it's gone out pretty much everywhere. As far as it, it can reach, it has gone out to them. But what was this example that Paul is talking about? Well, I would call it love on display. And we're going to th- see we're going to see three areas where we see this love on display. The first is in hospitality. Keep reading in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and you're going to see you're going to see a hint of this here. For he says in verse 9, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to si- serve the living and true God. So, you have this idea of hospitality. They received Paul and his entourage. They received the apostles. And remember what Jesus said even to his disciples. Like when you go into a city and you're received into a house, what do you do? You stay in that house, right? You stay there. Hospitality, it's kind of a lost, it's a lost, I, you might call it a discipline today. But it's, it's a lost quality that we have um, in, in our culture. It's much stronger in other cultures. It was very strong and very important in, in the New Testament. The word literally comes from two Greek words, meaning love and stranger. So love for stranger. So really, when we talk about hospitality, it does include like inviting people that you know over to your house, but probably the stronger element of hospitality actually deals with people you know less, not as well. So not like your best friends or your buddies that you hang out with all the time. There there is that aspect of hospitality, but it's more people that maybe you don't know as much. Like how do you open up your house to people that maybe you know you're more just acquaintances with. Maybe they they go to your church, but you know you're not uh, hanging out with them all the time. That's that would be more the flavor of hospitality. And Paul is saying, "Hey, you know you you received us, and that that's an example for others in walking in love." Because if you think about it, when you talk about hospitality, I mean, if you ever had people over to your house, I mean, there's a lot that goes into that. And there's inconveniences and challenges and you've got you know, kids running around and, and all sorts of things you're trying to do. But it is a display of love to, to welcome people into your house. And it can cost you, right? You're providing food, provision. Usually if you have people over on a regular basis, something's going to get broken in your house. Something's going to get knocked over. The carpet's going to get stained. All of that stuff has happened. You walk in love in the area of hospitality. Second, is in witnessing. Look what he says about them in, in verse 8 of chapter 1. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. So these, these huge land regions, they... They, we get the picture that they were doing something about spreading the gospel. Look at it again because I want you to see it. The word of the Lord sounded forth from who? From you. The word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So, I mean, it's strong in Macedonia and Achaia. That's the closest regions to them. But, but it's going out everywhere. So these, 
Thessalonians were, were not all inwardly, okay? And we've got to remember that, uh, as we've already looked at, I mean, affliction appears quite a bit in 1 Thessalonians. They're going through suffering. They're going through affliction. They're facing pressure. In fact, if you read the passage in Acts, it talks about Thessalonians, you, you see. Like, the, the city wasn't happy that Paul was there. The city wasn't happy that God was saving people. So even in the midst of that, I mean, it'd be easy to think, oh, we, we got to make sure this our, our, our little church here, I mean, survives, right? But what were they? They were outward focused. Even in the midst of affliction, even in the midst of suffering, their focus was still on spreading the gospel. They wanted to be witnesses. They did such a good job that Paul commends them for it. That's one of our, you know, part of our vision. We got three key words at Liberty. First is belong. Second is flourish. And third is go. And the go, the the whole little phrase for go is go, you guys remember it? In service and mission. Go in service and mission. This is the mission part. Go in mission. And the Thessalonians understood that. They were going in mission. They wanted to take the word and get it out to other people. Friends, why would that be? Because God had given them the gift of eternal life. And when you taste of the sweetness of the Lord, you want other people to taste it too. Think back. Maybe it was last week, last month, last year, 10 years ago, but think back to that time that your salvation was very new to you. It tasted rather sweet, like honey on the lips. I hope it still tastes sweet like that today. But we sometimes need to be reminded of that. You know, evangelism, it starts in the mirror. Evangelism starts in the mirror. What do I mean by that? I mean, we have to look in the mirror and remind ourselves of what God did in our own lives. And we need to make sure we're preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. Because, friends, every single one of us needs to be reminded of the truths of the gospel every day. We should wake up thanking the Lord. I woke up this morning. I tossed and turned all night, which is not usual for me. But I tossed and turned all night. And I woke up, I don't know how many times, way too many times last night. But the last time I woke up, when my alarm was finally going off, I was thanking the Lord that I had another day to serve Him, to walk with Him, to come here and be with my brothers and sisters. I was thanking Him, right? Thanking Him for what, though? That He's my Lord and Savior. That He's done a work in me. That He's, he's not brought it to completion yet. Praise the Lord, because I've got a long way to go. He's got a lot of work to do. But He's bringing that work to completion. So evangelism starts in the mirror. But part of our go in mission is the gospel being spread. It's going to be in small areas around us first, but it should be to our Macedonias and Achaeas, where we're sending people out. Uh, just like Raymond and Leanne that we had a few weeks ago, we're going to be a part of sending. If we can't be the sent ones, we want to be the ones that help send, right? We want to help send. So you have to go. If you want to grow, you have to go. That's how I'd say it. You have to go to grow. Um, as I shared, I think, a few weeks ago, I've shared it before, I'll share it again. I mean, when I share my faith, I might not be 
uh, always totally pumped up and excited five seconds before I start doing it, but I, I'm always pumped up and excited the rest of the day. Like, because I know God's going to walk me through it and carry me through it, and, and it's always a blessing every single time. I end up being blessed for it. The Thessalonians were blessed by it too. Thirdly, generosity. So first, hospitality. Second, in their witness. Third, in their generosity. I want you to see something in 2 Corinthians. Turn there. Keep your place in 1 Thessalonians. But 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is what God says to us. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, what are those churches again? Small quiz. Thessalonica, the Philippian church, and the Berean church, okay? So, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among these churches. For in a severe test of affliction, we just talked about it, First Thessalonians mentions it numerous times, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So they gave, as it says, out of, in verse 2, extreme poverty. Extreme poverty. Not just poor. Not just poverty. But extreme poverty. So they're, they're in extreme poverty. And yet, they still give so much that in the letter to the Corinthians, the second letter, Paul mentions it to the Corinthians by way of commendation. Look three chapters later, and we're going to see something similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In verse 9 he says, And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. So again, they saw that Paul needed help. Now, if, if you know the Scriptures, uh, what was uh, Paul's kind of like uh, secular job, so to speak? He was a tent maker, right? And, and a number of his letters, he talks about, hey, I wasn't a burden to you. Like, I, I worked with my own hands. You know, I wasn't taking money from you. <clears throat> so... Here, it must have been very tough times because he's making tents and he's selling them and that's how he provided for himself. Uh, but it must have gotten so tight that he, he needed some help. And who steps in? The Macedonian churches. They step in again with generosity. Romans 15 says something similar. Paul writes in Romans 15, verse 26, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Now, we just talked about the go in mission. This, I would say, is the go in service. Service is meeting physical needs. Mission is, is meeting spiritual needs. But when we talk about service, we're talking about physical needs. Maybe it's building a house for someone. Maybe it's doing a food drive. Maybe it's giving some, something that's going to cost us literally 
monetarily. It's going to cost us financially. But here's the thing. If we have a generous spirit, and Proverbs talks about it, we're not going to look at those verses right now, but Proverbs talks about the generous spirit. Uh, Generosity can't be contained. If you're a generous, it just like, it spills out from you. And you bless others. Because you're walking in generosity. Show me your credit card statement. Show me your bank statement. I'll show you your priorities. How we spend our money shows how we have priorities set up. Is it eating out? Is it clothes? Entertainment? Like, it's going to be there in plain sight. Are you generous? It's going to be there in plain sight. How do you show you care about the lost? Like, we can say we love the lost all we want. We can say we want the gospel to go forth all we want. But how do we show it? Well, we actually do something. We share the gospel with them. That's the best thing we could possibly do. How do you share, how do you show you care about God's people? I mean, we can say we love them all we want. How do we show it? Again, by our actions. In one way would be our hospitality. A second way would be our generosity. Because here's the thing, friends. When we come to this topic of love, love is a mark of a true believer. Okay, what kind of love? Well, a love for, for believers in Christ. But it's actually more than just a mark. It's actually a test of true Christianity. Whether we love other believers is a test of our true Christianity. Look at 1 John. Verse 9, chapter 2, 1 John. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Now, John wanted to make sure he is really clear, so he keeps going. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I remember reading this as a young believer and, and having to read it like three and four times. I was like, I, I can't believe John just wrote that. But he is saying the test of our Christianity, if you're in darkness, you're not a believer. If you're in the light, you're a believer. He's saying, you want to see if your Christianity is real or not? You want to know if you're really in the faith? We can look at if you love people, if you love brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at chapter 3, 1 John. Verse 10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. I mean, he's making it real clear right here, friends. This is the evidence. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Okay, so they're living. That's one. And then two, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Well, I mean, it's, pretty, it's a pretty bold statement. It's pretty straightforward. Why is this so, so true? Well, he, he, he continues to spell it out over in chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So we're, we're trying to claim we love, 
if we don't even have that love? And then even further, in a different section, he's like, how can we claim to love God who we can't see when we can't even love our brother who we can see? So our faith is displayed. It's shown to be real in the love we have towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. It truly is a test of our Christianity. Sometimes I've talked to people. They don't go to church. They're, they say they're believers. You know, they might say, like, I don't need church. It's me and Jesus. I'm fine without other believers. I mean, really what, what they're saying, if, if we just kind of boil it down, is, is I don't need God's people. Right? Tell me how that's love. Like, show me how that displays that you love brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't want to be around them. I don't need them. I'm fine without them. That's not love. In fact, how can you love your brothers and sisters if you're never in a church around other believers to display it properly? You can't. So God, He works through our love when we're displaying it to others. When we're walking in love, it has a powerful impact. Just this past week, I was listening to uh, a news program that goes uh, throughout uh, the nation. Um, it's a Christian you know, conservative podcast. And they actually acknowledged that Missouri uh, was indeed the first abortion-free state. So, I mean, that's just not like something that you know, different organizations here are trying to pump up and make us sound cool. But um, the word is spreading and getting out that God's doing a work here. Here's the thing. Love brings people to be generous towards an organization like Thrive or other pregnancy resource centers. If we even think about it, you know, a number of years ago, Thrive, if you don't know the story, maybe four or five, six years ago, maybe a little bit longer, but uh, a massive influx of donations came in at one of their uh, fundraising banquets. Not just like tens of thousands of dollars, not even like hundreds of thousands of dollars, but like millions Millions of dollars. It, it, it totally allowed them to do things they had only dreamed of. And Thrive, along with other pregnancy resource centers, has been on the, on the front lines for saving babies. Why? Because people, on that particular night, God touched a whole bunch of people in a, in a powerful way and gave them a generous spirit. Maybe they already had it. Maybe he gave them that night to give to Thrive. And Thrive's been a good steward of those resources, so much so that God has used them to help in the fight against abortion, to help save babies' lives. And they said it many years ago. That was their mission, to to make Missouri abortion-free. Now, will it stay that way? I don't know. But I know we can help out in many ways, including supporting organizations like Thrive so they continue to have the resources to help ladies that that have pregnancies where they're in need and not sure what to do. That's walking in love, though. I, I heard this... Um, really cool story um, a number of years ago. Um, this lady um, sadly had chosen to have an abortion and um, was feeling a lot of guilt and conviction about it. Um, and, and God was like working on her heart, like, you need to work through this. Like, it wasn't right, you know. And she ends up, she ends up getting saved. 
And God's like working on her heart like you need, you need to go to counseling. One of the things that Thrive has, you know, they, they have all sorts of resources, but one of the things they do, they do is they have um, post-abortion counseling. So ladies that have abortion um, that, re- that regret making that decision, they have counselors that will help walk them through that, work them through that. So this lady, um, she, you know, God's been working on her heart, and she's like, I know I need to, you know, go through counseling. She's been avoiding everything. And finally, um, after months and months, she's like, okay, I'm going to do it. And she sets up um, an appointment um, for her for her first counseling session, and you know she's all stressed, understandably freaking out. And she's on her way there, and she gets in a car accident. Uh, her fault. And um, the the guy jumps out of the car and comes like running back to her car. She rolls down the window, and he's like, uh, "I don't I don't know like where you're supposed to be or what's going on." But he's like, "Don't worry about the car accident. Just get to where you're going. You're supposed to be there." And it was like God, you know, speaking through this man, like, hey, I, I'm going to take care of things. I got you. Like, you're, you're going to be okay. You know, and God ended up using that. She got to the counseling session. And the Lord helped her work through that, that, um, that painful time in her life and that painful decision she made. But God works through our love. And real love goes to, is willing to go and will go to extreme ends. We're still in 1 John, so let's just look at it in chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Who's the he? Jesus. By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. Well, why do we know by this, how do we know it's love? Well, because we know that's a loving thing to do, for someone to lay down their life for us. And then it goes on, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That is a sacrificial love. Friends, that, that is the love that Jesus willingly went to the cross for you. To take care of your sins once and for all. He made a covenant with the Father because he wanted for you to have opportunity to be reunited with the Father. The fellowship is broken. Your sin breaks off that fellowship immediately with God. It's gone. And that sin continues to be a wall between you and God. The wall has to be dealt with. It's a wall, if you want to call it, as, as Ephesians does, it's a wall of hostility. And you're the enemy of God. You might not feel like it, but you're not walking in His ways. You don't love Him. You don't really care about Him. He created you. So there's this wall, and Jesus is like, I'm tearing down the wall. I'm going to tear it down. I want you to be able to get back to the Father. So the Father sends the Son to grab you back for His own, to get you back to the Father's side. So He pays the price. The only way to tear down that wall is for death to occur. It's either going to be your life or Jesus' life. So Jesus pays the price. He pays the eternal price. You either have to pay with an eternal death in hell or Jesus pays it. An eternal God can make an eternal payment, right? And he makes the eternal payment. Why? So that you can be brought back to the Father. How does that occur? Through your trust in God. You're like, God, that is amazing that you did that for me. Like, you want to just wipe the slate clean? You want to wipe the slate clean and just take care of all my sins and you'll be with me? And you want to walk with me and you want to know me? Well, you already know me. But you want me to know you? 
Lord, how does that occur? Through trusting in Him. That what Jesus did was enough. That you don't have to do anything, friends. No works. The Bible says it's not about works. It literally says it's not about works. Over and over again, God takes you and declares you to be righteous. How? He does it through the gift of faith. That's the instrument. You got faith. You trust. And there's all sorts of different kinds of faith. But like a real faith that truly trusts. It knows the truth. It believes the truth. And then it walks in that truth. That's what we have to do. It's not just like, oh, yeah, that's kind of true. That's cool or whatever. No, it's like life-changing, life-altering. You realize that God did not spare his own son just for you. That's life-altering and life-changing if you truly believe it. So you trust in the Father and what Jesus did for you, the Son. You believe, and then you walk in that belief. If you believe, the Bible says, you confess with your mouth, Jesus Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says, Romans 10, you will be saved. Instantly, we were talking about darkness before. You're taken from the kingdom of darkness, and you're brought over to the kingdom of light. It happens in a flash. From darkness to light. And man, is that light wonderful. When you're in the darkness, not so good. Right? You wake up in the middle of the night, you flip that light on, you're like, oh. All right? Try being up here sometimes with these guys. All right? You're like, oh. But when you're in the light, and the, I mean, it's a beautiful thing. And you can see clearly. You can see the truth clearly. We have a faith that matters. And we have a faith that is true. Listen, other religions, they don't have that. Like, try proving Buddhism is true. Try proving Hinduism is true. Do you know how many books are written on why Buddhism is true? Like, none. Seriously. Do you know how many books are written on why Hinduism is true? None. Why don't people try and white one? Because it's not, listen to this, an evidentiary religion. It's not a religion that depends on evidence to support its truth claims. It really doesn't even have truth claims. Um, I mean, I guess it does, but Hinduism, everything is like an illusion. So even truth, I guess, itself could be an illusion. It's kind of odd. But listen, there's many books written on Buddhism and Hinduism. I had to read them in college. That was part of my degree in religious studies. Many books on Buddhism and Hinduism, they got their own set of scriptures too. All those books though, they talk about like why it's good for you. Why it's helpful. Why it's insightful. Why it's comforting. Well, I mean, that's fine. You know, massages are comforting, uh, but I don't want massages to be the foundation of my worldview. Okay? <laughs> steroids can be helpful, but I don't want steroids as the foundation for my worldview. And even sport commentators can be insightful, uh, but I don't want sport commentators as the foundation for my worldview. We want the bedrock of our faith to be founded on truth. And that's what it is. Let me just say one more thing. If we're going to live out our faith, well, I just want to speak to the parents for a moment, or even the parents-to-be. Whatever you raise your kids with, is what you raise them to. And when it comes to love or any other topic, 
Um, it's going to apply to all areas of our lives. Our conversation, our time, our activities, we're setting an example to them of how to live life, how to have a biblical worldview. But here's the thing. Sometimes the loudest lessons we teach are the ones where we never use words. What do I mean by that? We speak loudly by just at the end of the day, when the work day has ended, we come home and how we spend those last few hours with our family. Whether we're gathered, that speaks, or whether we're not gathered, that speaks. But what we do during that time, what they see us doing in our free time, we're never using words, but it's speaking volumes to what we think is important in life. We can also speak it just by different struggles we have. If you have a money problem, there's a good chance your kids are going to have a money problem. They're just going to see how you spend money or how you don't spend money. If you have an anger problem, your kids are probably going to have an anger problem because they're going to see, oh, this is how I deal when I get frustrated, when I'm unhappy with the situation, when I'm mad with something. Why? Because we've, we've trained them unknowingly what to think and feel about different subjects. It, it should be a wake-up call for each one of us that are parents, especially with kids still in the home, that we're setting an example to them even if we never sit down and have a Bible time with them, which we should. We're teaching it. We're, we're setting the example. So let's make sure when we're speaking about love and what it looks like on display that when it comes to the private affairs of our house, that love is on display. Because all of us, if we're honest, can come here and put a little better shine on things in terms of our character, in terms of our words. It's a, little bit harder, harder, it's a little bit harder to hide that once the front door of the home closes. But we don't hide it ever from our kids. They see it day in and day out. You want your kids to grow up knowing Jesus, walk strong with the Lord. You want your kids to grow up knowing Jesus, have the best possible relationship you can with your spouse so that the flavor of Jesus is in that home. doesn't mean there's not going to be arguments. doesn't mean there's not going to be uh, <clears throat> frustrations. It definitely doesn't mean there's not going to be sin. Sin will abound. But where sin abounds, you better make sure grace abounds more. Sometimes sin abounds and grace ain't abounding. You're not living according to the promises of the Scriptures. But where sin abounds, you better make sure grace abounds more and more and more and more and more. You're going to have the sin. Make sure that you deal with it righteously, biblically, that you confess it. If you're sinning against your kids, you're sinning in their presence, you better be uh, a Christian enough, you better love God enough to admit that, to humble yourself in their presence and make that right, whether it's in their presence or it's specifically against them. That will do much more for their souls than you just sweeping it under the rug. For you hoping they forget, or you thinking, well, I'm the man of the house, or I'm the mom. That ain't doing them no good. Walk in humility. So where does this leave us? What does God want us to do? Well, we need to, we need to heed what it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We need to do this more and more. Each of those areas, hospitality, witnessing, and generosity. Do this. That's the sign of our love inside the church and outside the church. We need to do this more and more. 
Where are we falling short in these areas? What do we do? We confess it. We repent of it. We change and we walk forward with God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we do acknowledge that we do need your grace and we need it to abound more and more and more. Lord, give anyone who doesn't have the gift of faith, Lord, give them true saving faith today that they might trust in you, they might believe in you, they might see your goodness, they might see the offer of eternal life and want to be forgiven of their sins, want to be made right with you, want to be whole in your presence. Spirit, do your work now. And I do pray, Lord, the believers here, we would walk and display love more fully each day, each week, each passing month, each passing year. Let it be evident and prevalent in our lives, in our families, in our church. May this be for your glory, Lord. Amen.